Jeff's Midweek Bible Study, a verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible with Pastor Jeff Lassane. We hope this podcast encourages your faith, and now, here's Pastor Jeff. Hello to everyone, and it's great having you tune in for the podcast. In this message, we'll be looking at the last section of Mark chapter 6. I know it seems like we've been in Mark chapter 6 forever, but the light is at the end of the tunnel. One of our great American heroes and founding fathers is Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson was the Secretary of State under our first president, George Washington, then vice president under our second president, John Adams, and then he was elected as the third president of the United States. Jefferson was one of the writers of the Declaration of Independence, and he was an advocate for democracy. Jefferson was so patriotic, he even died on the 4th of July. Sadly, though, Thomas Jefferson was not a hero of the Christian faith. Yes, he believed in God, but he rejected many essential doctrines like the Trinity, the deity of Jesus, including the virgin birth, as well as the teachings about original sin, the atonement from the cross, and the resurrection. And so, as the Apostle John warns us in his first epistle, God the Father has given us his Son, and eternal life is in the Son. Therefore, he who does not have the Son does not have eternal life. Jefferson believed strongly in God and considered himself a Christian, but then contradicted himself by declaring that he did not believe in the deity of Jesus and only considered him a wise sage of good morals. In the Smithsonian Institute, there's a leather-bound Bible on display called the Jefferson Bible. It's the Bible that Thomas Jefferson read every day until his death. And that sounds encouraging, doesn't it? But here's the problem. Using a razor, Jefferson cut out and pasted verses from the four Gospels, putting them in chronological order. And as he did that, he tossed out any verses, many of them, referring to miracles and the resurrection. So it truly was the Jefferson Bible rather than God's Holy Bible. Jefferson arrogantly stated that it was easy for him to discern what actually belonged in the Gospels and what he thought had been added through the centuries. Well, let me just say that makes for a very small New Testament and a very large problem. When you reject the miracles and the resurrection of Jesus, then you have rejected Jesus and you have no hope, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. And as we discussed in our last podcast message, it's the miracles of Jesus that affirm his divinity, his true identity, his authority, and his ministry. In our last message, we considered his miracle of feeding the 5,000, and now in these final verses of Mark chapter 6, we're going to encounter two more miracles. And so let's read now in our passage, we're picking up in verse 45. We read, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. 
Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea or lake, and he was alone on the land. Then Jesus saw the disciples straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the water, and he would have passed them by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure, and they marveled, for they had not understood about the loaves, because their hearts were hardened. There's a lot for us to unpack here, and the title of this message is Understanding the Storms of Life. In the feeding of the 5,000, we saw a miracle of provision, Jesus feeding thousands of people with only a small lunch of bread and fish. Here now, we have a miracle of protection. From that secluded remote area that was not far from Bethsaida, Jesus sent the disciples in a boat to go to the actual village of Bethsaida. This was the same evening that Jesus had fed the multitudes and then sent them away as well. As the disciples sailed off in the boat, Jesus went up into the upper hillsides to pray. Based on the events that followed, I think we can safely assume that Jesus was praying for the people and that he was praying for his disciples. He prayed for the people because their hearts were hardened and unsaved. According to John's gospel covering this same passage, after he miraculously fed the multitudes, they wanted to take Jesus and make him their king, a king who would feed them and I guess who would, well, become their burger king. (laughs) Sorry, that was bad. According to John 6, Jesus preached a key sermon to the multitudes on that next day, and in the message, he declared to them several times, I am the bread of life, and I am the bread that comes down from heaven. He was exhorting them to quit seeking the physical bread that perishes and to seek the spiritual bread of eternal life in the person of Jesus. Sadly, by the time his sermon was finished there in John 6, virtually all of his so-called followers were walking away. Oh, they loved the free food, but they had no saving faith. So Jesus would have prayed for their hardened hearts. And during that same prayer time, Jesus certainly would have prayed for the disciples. That's because Jesus knew he was sending them out on the Galilee Lake to face a storm. They didn't know it, but Jesus certainly did. Jesus was continuing to do the work of strengthening and growing their faith. In the same way, Jesus allows us and even sends us into the storms of life so that our faith and dependence on him might also grow. And so under our message title then, Understanding the Storms of Life, our first point, if you're taking notes, is Jesus allows the storms. Jesus doesn't usually cause or create the storms in our lives per se, but he knows when they're coming, and he uses them to increase our faith and our trust and our dependence upon him. Most of the storms we face are simply the results of us living in a broken and fallen world. Hey, Jesus doesn't need to create most of our storms. We've created most of them ourselves. Those storms include trials of health, marriage, divorce, family problems, job problems, people problems, and on the list goes. 
But as Pastor John MacArthur well said, if you don't understand that God is using all the difficulties you face to perfect you, you'll be at peace. Let me say that again to make sure I said that correctly. If you understand that God is using all the difficulties you face to perfect you, you'll be at peace. The world is shakable and changing, but God is unshakable and unchanging. Jesus sent the disciples on their way to Bethsaida with the idea that he would catch up with them later. It wasn't very far away, and the disciples did not need to sail across the lake. They simply would have sailed parallel to the shoreline in the northern corner of the lake until they reached the town. But then a strong wind arose and pushed their boat out towards the center of the lake. As I've mentioned before, the Sea of Galilee, which is actually a freshwater lake, is about 13 miles long from top to bottom and about 8 miles at its widest point across the lake. If you travel around the lake, it's about 33 miles long, and so oftentimes the quickest and easiest way back in the first century to go from town to town around the lake was by crossing the water in a boat. It was also the deepest freshwater, and it is the deepest freshwater lake in the world at around 700 feet deep. Now, in New Testament times, no one knew how deep the Sea of Galilee Lake was, Back then, they would lower a rope down into the water with weights attached to the end in order to test how deep the water was, but it was deeper than any ropes they had. This produced a a belief among some of the people that the depth of the Galilee Lake was unfathomable and that it went all the way down into the unseen underworld. So please keep that thought in mind, and we'll come back to that shortly. Well, as it became dark and the storm pushed the disciples' boat out towards the middle of the lake, Jesus was still in the upper hillsides praying. And yet, in verse 48, we read that he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Jesus was not with them, and yet he saw them and knew exactly what was going on. Forget about Superman's x-ray vision. This was divine, omniscient vision. And this brings us to our second point. Jesus sees us in our storms. They couldn't see Jesus, but Jesus could see them. You know, oftentimes as we face the storms in our lives, we're guilty of thinking that Jesus doesn't see what we're going through, or he doesn't understand what we're facing. Or worse yet, some believers mistakenly conclude that Jesus doesn't care. I hope you don't make that mistake, because nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus sees, Jesus knows, He understands, and he cares. When Queen Jezebel, the wicked wife of King Ahab, put out a death warrant on the prophet Elijah, he ran for his life. This familiar story is recorded in the Old Testament in 1 Kings. And Elijah ended up running several miles away and ended up hiding in a cave. When the Lord went to him and spoke to him, he asked him, "'What are you doing here, Elijah?' The prophet proceeded to tell God about everything that was going on and as if God didn't know. Elijah even said, everyone has forsaken you and I alone am left. God answered Elijah and told him what he didn't know, saying, I have preserved 7,000 others who have not worshipped Baal. In other words, you're not the only faithful one, Elijah. There's thousands of others as well. Once again, God sees, he knows, and he cares. Well, back to our struggling disciples out on the wind-tossed, choppy waters. They were straining to row against the wind with just four oars, and without the modern-day luxury of an outboard motor, 
to get them back to shore, and also it was pitch black. Next, we read that in the early morning hours, the fourth watch, which describes the time between 3 and 6 a.m., Jesus came walking on the water towards them. This gives us a third important point. Jesus comes to us in our storms. When it's very dark and when it's most difficult, Jesus comes to us. He may not remove the storm, but he always comes alongside of us to give us comfort and strength. And sometimes he comes to us in unexpected ways, like he did here, walking on the water. Just as a reminder, don't look for any of this in the Jefferson Bible. He took a razor and cut all of these miracles out. It also says, and Jesus would have passed them by. And this has confused some Bible students. And the problem is that it's really not the best translation of the Greek wording. A better translation would be, he desired to come alongside of them. In other words, Jesus was going to walk close by the boat on the water to see how the disciples would respond. Would they see him and call out to him for help? Well, not exactly. They saw him, but then we read that they thought he was a ghost and cried out in fear. They needed Christ, but they thought it was Casper. But to help us understand this a bit better, let's go back to what I mentioned earlier about this belief by some that the Galilee Lake was unfathomable and that the deep waters led down to the unseen world. Now, I'm not suggesting that the disciples necessarily believed any of that, but they were well aware of what others talked about in regards to that. Now, they're already frightened, and someone's walking on the water towards them, and they thought it was a ghost. Maybe it was one of the spirits risen from the unseen underworld. Let's be fair-minded here and admit that any of us would have undoubtedly had some sort of similar reaction as far as being afraid. Yes, Jesus could walk on water, but no one had ever seen him do that before, and now it's dark and during a storm. We read here in verse 50 that they all saw him and they were all afraid. Then we read that as Jesus spoke to them, he comforted them. That's our fourth point. Jesus comforts us in our storms. How does Jesus speak to us in our storms today? Well, through his word, in the hearing of his still small voice as we pray, in times of worship and praise, through other believers who share words of comfort. Now, of course, this means we need to be in the word, we need to be praying, we need to be worshiping, and we need to be in fellowship. Otherwise, how is the Lord going to speak to us and comfort us? It's sort of a strategic trick of the devil when we're going through difficult storms and he helps us to, quote unquote, not feel like reading or praying or worshiping or fellowshipping. The disciples were very afraid in the midst of this storm, and so are we in many of our storms. You know, I used to live in Southern California where there were not really very many storms, and now I live in Tennessee where we have lots of thunderstorms, and I love them. But we have a couple of dogs, small ones, and one of them in particular gets very afraid when the thunder cracks and sounds like a giant bowling alley above our house. We talk to him and try to reassure him, but he still shakes and shivers. So what do we do? We pick him up and hold him in our lap, and before long, he settles down. He's comforted and secure in our arms. And that's where we need to be, in the arms of our Savior when the storms of life frighten us. Jesus comforts us and holds us securely. The words of Jesus are a great comfort as we read here. And Jesus says to them, be of good cheer, or in other words, be encouraged. 
And then he says, it is I, do not be afraid. Those three little words, don't be afraid, are the most frequently spoken words from God to people in the Bible. Once again, it's the compassion and comfort of God. And the words, it is I, literally translates, I am. Now, where have we heard those words before? Hmm. Of course, God spoke those words to Moses on Mount Sinai. God had appointed Moses to go to Egypt and to confront Pharaoh about letting God's people go. And Moses had asked God, what shall I say that your name is when the people ask me? And God said, you shall tell them, I am that I am, and the I am has sent you. And then over in John 8:58 when Jesus was debating back and forth with the unreligious or the unsaved religious leaders, um, he said to them, "Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am." Jesus was claiming, rightfully so, to be one with the Father and the same great I am that met with Moses. Once again, don't look for that in the Jefferson Bible. He didn't believe in the Trinity and so he cut it out. Hey, don't get me wrong. I truly admire and appreciate Jefferson's contribution to the founding of our nation, but you can't take a razor blade and separate Jesus from God. Agreeing or disagreeing with the Bible does not change or affect its truth. Now, according to Matthew's gospel, after Jesus spoke these words of comfort and before he caused the wind and storm to stop, Peter spoke up and stepped out. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, if it's really you, bid me to come to you. So Jesus invited Peter to come out of the boat and to walk on the water, giving us yet another miracle in this story. By the way, we might wonder why Mark did not record that story about Peter walking on the water here in his gospel like Matthew did. Let me offer you this suggestion. If you were with us in the very beginning of this series, we talked about the background of this gospel and how Mark was not one of the 12 disciples. He certainly spent time around them because Jesus and the disciples met at the home of Mary, the mother of Mark, there in Jerusalem. We also talked about Mark receiving his information for his gospel from Peter. In his epistles, Peter calls Mark his son in the faith, meaning that Mark probably became a believer through the witness of Peter, just as Timothy and Titus were Paul's sons in the faith. So the possible reason why Mark doesn't include the story of Peter walking on the water is because Peter himself perhaps told Mark to keep the focus on Jesus and off of himself. Now, of course, we don't know that, but I think it's a possible explanation. So now Peter is walking on the water, making his way towards Jesus. As one pastor well said, you better not get out of the boat if Jesus doesn't say come, and you better not stay in the boat if Jesus does say come. This brings us to our fifth point, Jesus uses our storms to increase our faith. Peter went from the back of the boat to the head of the class. But this type of faith building would not have happened apart from going through the storm. We need to know that. By the way, you and I are so familiar with this story that sometimes these amazing details just sort of zip right on by us. Now, isn't it strange that Peter would ask this request of Jesus in this situation? Think about it. It's dark. They're all afraid. The storm is threatening them. 
and Jesus walks to them on the water, something they've never seen or experienced before, they freak out and they think it's a ghost. Then Jesus calms them down and says, hey, it's me, fellas, don't be afraid. And Peter's immediate response is, Lord, if it's really you, bid me to walk out on the water to you? Really? (laughs) That's Peter's first response? Where in the world did that come from? How about, hey, Lord, if it's really you, please airlift us to the shore right now. Or how about, Lord, did you happen to bring 12 life jackets with you? Notice with me that while Peter was bold and maybe a little weird, he wasn't presumptuous. In other words, he didn't just jump out of the boat and try to start walking on the water. He asked the Lord to invite him out of the boat. Peter, the seasoned fisherman who had spent his career out on the water on the inside of a boat, was now anxious to try walking on the water for himself. My own mind my own mind is also a bit strange and I think back to the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Uh, many of you saw that and towards the end of the film they're inside this rock fortress called the Treasury at Petra uh, trying to retrieve the cup of Christ from the Last Supper. And as Indiana is making his way through the inner caves of this rock fortress, he comes to this giant, huge, dark opening, this chasm referred to as the leap of faith. And in order to get to the other side, it's impossible. There's nothing in front of him. And it's called the leap of faith because he has to just step out into thin air over the giant opening in order to get across. And so against all logic, he does that. He steps off of the rock out into the open air, takes that first step, and suddenly a narrow bridge appears under his feet and he walks across on solid footing. It reminds me of Peter taking a step of faith here when he placed his foot on top of the water and then he didn't sink. However, before long, Peter did begin to sink. He got distracted by the wind and the waves, and he took his eyes off of Jesus. Let's make that point number six. Jesus needs to be our constant focus in the storms. Our storms are real, and they can be terrifying. So we must keep our eyes focused on Christ, our comforter, our helper, and our protector. Jesus then asked Peter why he doubted. Now that was probably a rebuke, perhaps, because Jesus also calls him, you of little faith. But it's also possible that Jesus wasn't mm, sternly rebuking Peter as much as he was actually kind of encouraging him. Funny how Peter was the only person in the Bible besides Jesus to walk on water, and yet Jesus told him he had little faith. I think most of us would be thrilled to have that kind of faith. Now, when I say that Jesus was perhaps encouraging Peter. I mean that perhaps the Lord was saying to him, oh man, you were doing great, Peter, and then you took your eyes off of me. You know, kind of like a father teaching his young child to ride a bicycle for the first time. They're doing great. They're riding along. They're listening to dad's voice, and then they get distracted. They stop pedaling, and they fall over. And dad says, oh no, you were doing great. You just needed to keep pedaling. So perhaps in our story, it wasn't as much a rebuke as it was an encouragement to Peter to go further in his faith the next time. In verse 51, we read that as soon as Jesus got into the boat, the wind ceased. Yet another miracle. Let's make that our seventh and final point. Jesus sometimes removes the storm. Not always, but many times he will in his timing. And listen carefully, please. 
if our storms end up taking us to heaven, better yet, because we're not only delivered from that difficult storm, but from any and all future storms. We're then in the eternal presence of Jesus. Here in the boat, we read that the disciples were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure. But why? Jesus had calmed a violent storm before when they were in the boat. Remember when they were crossing over to the land of the Gadarenes? And here they had just witnessed Jesus feeding thousands of people with a little boy sack lunch. So why are they still so surprised? The answer is given to us in verse 52. For they had not understood about the loaves because their hearts were hardened. Yes, they saw and participated in the miracle of the feeding, but their hearts had still not fully comprehended the true divine identity of Jesus. But you know, all of this even helps our faith today because the disciples were not just a bunch of weak-minded, glassy-eyed dreamers following the Pied Piper. They were skeptical, often selfish, always slow on the uptake, salt-of-the-earth guys trying to fully grasp who Jesus was. For those who claim that Christianity is just a crutch for weak-minded people, think again. It takes a lot of faith and tons of grace to follow Jesus. By the way, there was one more miracle that took place in this story. It's not recorded here, but it is in John's gospel when he records the same story. And in John 6.21, we read the words, they willingly received Jesus into the boat and immediately the boat was at land where they were going. The wording states that another miracle took place and the boat was instantly, miraculously at its destination. Jesus performed a quantum leap or else he called Scotty on board the Starship Enterprise, and they were beamed over to Bethsaida. Let's go ahead and close out this chapter as we read our final verses, picking up in verse 53. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and anchored there. And when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized Jesus, ran through the whole surrounding region, and began to carry about on beds those who were sick to wherever they heard he was. Wherever he entered, into villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment, and as many as touched him were made well. The woman with the issue of blood wasn't the only person who touched the hem of his garment and was healed. Jesus continued traveling through the Galilee region, healing the sick and ministering to hurting people which in turn gave Jesus the opportunity to teach them and tell them the good news about the kingdom of heaven. In closing, the storm you're in right now may be making your life seem very dark. Pastor Dustin Benj describes the darkness that Christ endured for us, and it gives us encouragement. Listen to what he writes. The virgin birth required Christ to be in the darkness of a womb. His impending betrayal caused Christ to be in the darkness of the garden. Our salvation required Christ to endure the darkness of the cross. And the resurrection required Christ to lay in the darkness of the tomb. Jesus suffered darkness so that we could experience and receive his light. So whatever darkness you may be facing today or in the days to come, Jesus is the light he is the love, and He is the life. And so we say, thank you, Jesus. Jesus.